The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. Hello and welcome to this edition of Stockhead's Wildcatter Report. Today we are delighted to have Ray Wills in with us today to talk about the energy market. Now Ray has a a very long curriculum vitae. Uh, He is the managing director at advisory firm Future Smart Strategies and chair of solar farm developer Sunbright Power and variously executive or non-executive director of several other entities including our very own in Western Australia Horizon Power. He is also adjunct professor at the University of Western Australia, contributing to the academic program they have there and commenting on behalf of UWA on climate change and sustainability. Welcome to the Wildcatter podcast, Ray. G'day, Peter. Ray, you've had a long and uh, well-credentialed career in energy and in uh, uh, resources uh, exposure. Perhaps you could just tell the listener a little bit about how you've come to be in this sort of renewable energy space as your primary focus. Yeah, I guess the bottom line is I'm a geek, but uh, how I get to that point is that last century, working as a botanist uh, and and an ecologist in Western Australia, I was getting involved in all the new tech and all the new toys that were coming out for uh, ecological work and biological work. I was involved in broad-scale ecological survey, which created big data sets or what we referred to as big data sets back in the day, uh, something that would fit on a floppy disk these days, and you don't even have floppy disks anymore. But the short of it is I was playing with all the new tools, geographic information systems, uh, remote sensing through hyperspectral image analysis, uh, and looking at uh, a whole range of new technologies, including new fandangled thing called a relational database. And all of that led me into gathering data, accumulating data, Data took me to write um, papers. Papers took me to write management plans. Management plans started me writing policy. Uh, And what I discovered is that uh, back in the day, I was a pretty good policy wonk. Uh, And so I started contributing broadly to policy in the agencies that I was working with uh, in government, um, conservation land management, and also Botanic Gardens and Parks Authority. And in that, I was starting to interact with uh, the policy development in broader sectors of uh, information and technologies that were evolving at the time because I knew a lot about them, uh, developing web pages for the companies and, and enterprises I was working with. So really, I was just a geek playing with toys. And in that, those days, I was working on ecosystems. But at the turn of the century, I went and worked for Parliament for a while in the Parliamentary Committee system. Uh, and that was a license for an education. And I took an ecological training and applied it to research questions that parliamentary inquiries were making. Uh, And amongst those things were things like um, apprenticeships and traineeships, uh, the sustainability of the dairy industry, the management of the strata title industry. So a whole host of new topics that were new to me in terms of topic areas, but uh, really underlain by asking important research questions. And the last gig I had there was on renewable energy and energy efficiency. Uh, And so that brought me to the attention of the Chamber of Commerce and Industry, where I got involved in resources and energy, particularly through the early 2000s, and developing more policy for industry. Uh, Ultimately, where I went after that is to head up a uh, 
an industry chamber on energy of the Sustainable Energy Association. And when I did that, one of the things I suddenly lacked that I had before was a whole pile of data. Um, the renewable energy industry is new. There wasn't a lot of data to be had. And so I started as a geek going out and farming data from all the different sources I could find and assembling that data into uh, understandable and coherent models. Uh, and those models I then started to use to help the industry itself form up. So ultimately, at the beginning of this decade, I got to a point where my pro projects were maturing in terms of the models and started understanding energy flows through a whole range of different uses in a human ecosystem. That is the built environment, transport, planning, infrastructure, and the like. And in particular, of course, energy generation. And so a lot of my modeling was actually looking at how quickly will we take up renewable energy, wind and solar in particular, but also thinking more recently about batteries and electric vehicles and the like. So a lot of what I do now is drawing on an ecosystem, but an ecosystem in industry rather than an ecosystem uh, from the natural environment. Well, Ray, we really like, on Wildcatter, we like this systems approach that your biological background brings to us. And, and we're, whilst Wildcatter would indicate that we're more interested in uh, fossil fuels, we are very much energy agnostic, as uh, demonstrated by our uh, talks with the uh, Redflow battery people a couple of weeks ago. So I think uh, really where we could start on this is just looking at, I mean, you'd have to say that you, know, you got into this business sort of 20 years ago and there's been massive changes, probably changes that you wouldn't have thought possible in 20 years. Is that fair enough? Yeah, look, I mean, if I want to go back right to the beginning of my uh, PhD, it was a, a PhD on the honeybee use of vegetation. Uh, so there's flight involved and there's also the gathering of energy and nectar sources. Um, so energy has always been a key part of what I've thought about in all these processes. And certainly in the mid 2000s, uh, when I was working with Parliament and then with the Chamber of Commerce and Industry, uh, we were starting to see change. But some of the things that we were looking at then was energy efficiency was key. Energy efficiency today remains key for everything. Uh, energy efficiency should always be the first thing that we do. But what we were seeing at that point was um, Australia had just stepped into a 2.5% renewable energy target. It was mind-blowing. It was huge. Uh, and uh, uh, in the document that the Howard government uh, put together for renewable energy back in, uh, in the early part of the century, uh, if I can phrase yeah. it that way, um, solar was not mentioned in the document for renewable energy. Uh, it later, of course, got changed to be a 20% target by Rudd. Uh, but uh, in the initial phase, uh, the first document for renewable energy target in Australia did not mention solar. Then when Rudd brought the 20% target into play in 2009, of course, solar was, was becoming dominant. Uh, but we didn't quite appreciate just how dominant it would be at that stage. And we didn't know just how quickly the prices, the cost of this technology, the efficiencies would, would improve and the costs would come down. Yeah, most of us didn't. Uh, I was fairly bullish in terms of uh, the process of, of take-up of new technologies. Um, ecosystem evolution and industrial ecosystem evolution uh, follows some fairly standard uh, uh, laws. Um, there's uh, Rogers S-curve, which unders underscores the innovation uh, there's also rights law, which, which is the paradigm that every time you double manufacturing uh, or processes, uh, you reduce costs in the range of uh, 15 to 20%. Yeah. Uh, and with the rights law applied to solar and with the growth of solar, 
the expectation of both scale and volume and the commensurate reduction in price was predictable by some, but but not most of us. So it's, I'd say it's fair to say that in Australia, despite the lack of sort of top-down uh, regulatory uh, framework for renewable energy, Australia has been uh, far and away one of the biggest innovators and adopters of this technology, just as we were, uh, we led the charge into uh, uh, mobile telecommunication. We've been massive adopters of uh, solar photovoltaic. Of course, we can go all the way back to the stump jump plough and also back to the hills hoist. But uh, if we focus on the immediacy of of these technologies, even with solar, uh, Australia has a long history of leading in solar photovoltaic research. The University of New South Wales, of course, uh, doing an awful lot of work in that space and continuing today to be a global leader. What we've failed to do, of course, is to implement it, to actually practically apply it to our industries in Australia uh, and establish a manufacturing base for that in Australia. Yeah, and I don't think we're Robinson Crusoe in that respect. <laughs> Not at all. I think, uh, although what's changing, of course, is that uh, uh, it was going to be increasingly difficult to do it last century as labour costs in Australia grew. Uh, and it's also been, even last decade, not something that we could have in our sites. Uh, but in this next decade, uh, one of the changes that's happening with all technology shifts is both automation and robotics uh, and embedded within that artificial intelligence. Those three things meeting in the same place, converging in the same place, should make a different manufacturing scene for the next decade. And my view is we can, we can uh, apply that to not only clean technologies like solar, but of course also to the whole of the battery value chain starting from the resource sector end and moving all the way downstream to products. Yeah, and so we're uh, well placed with respect to lithium and uh, graphite and uh, nickel and manganese and some of the other uh, uh, elements that are going to go into those um, those batteries. Now, I just wonder if we can jump right into the thick of it. Recently, we've had uh, news out of uh, Queensland where for several hours in the day, uh, the input prices into the grid have been zero to negative. And then more recently, we've, we're hearing that in Western Australia, uh, we've got about a gigawatt or a thousand megawatts of rooftop solar voltaic, uh, photovoltaic on people's roofs. Uh, and this now has got to the point where it's destabilising the grid and causing problems with voltage and uh, uh, stability of the grid uh, during different parts of the day. And really the call on the base sort of fossil fuel loads of coal and gas during the middle of the day is reducing uh, dramatically because so much uh, of our uh, energy supply now is coming from these photovoltaics from roofs and also from a, a growing uh, sort of squadron of uh, wind-powered uh, plants uh, scattered along the West Australian coast. So these are issues, I guess, that uh, people are struggling with in terms of how to adjust and maintain or rejig the actual uh, grid so that it goes from being a central a power supply to being a distributed power supply system. How do you think that's going to play out? Look, I'll start with a big uh, picture issue, and that is that last century, we had centrally planned everything. We had central printing presses, we had central banks, and we had central power stations. And they were very much command and control. They were dumb systems um, generating along dumb networks that really were fairly inflexible, not computerised, uh, not with multiple sensors. 
what we've got now is an opportunity to revamp uh, our energy network in the case of, of electricity uh, with a smart grid, a smart grid that is uh, intelligent, that can respond uh, to a whole range of different data metrics uh, and be self-managing. Uh, one of the things that a recent article has, has highlighted, uh, as you described in the introduction just then, uh, was this thought that the grid may become destabilised. Now, the article is actually talking about what it perceives will be the future. Uh, and so there's been no grid instability in Western Australia with solar or wind uh, in any time since in these last two decades. Uh, indeed, uh, what we've seen with the advent of solar and the grid in Western Australia is an increase in stability. Uh, back before solar panels started to go under rooftops, we had regular blackouts in summertime because of large demand from air conditioners. Certainly at the end of the grid, I know Margaret River being right down the bottom of the uh, Swiss, uh, when the population goes from you know 10 or 12,000 to 32 or 35,000 and everyone's cooking in the afternoon, uh, Margaret River during the summer would always have black blackouts because the grid was, wasn't stiff enough. Absolutely. And so uh, so there's been this view and, it, and it's a view because it hasn't eventuated as yet. Uh, there is possibility that as we get to even greater penetration of, of solar in particular of rooftops, that some of these issues may in fact bubble up. But right now, there actually hasn't been any. The articles that have been written are talking about the future. Um, but the, ironically, the article was written at exactly the same time as on Saturday. Uh, we had so much energy generation from wind and solar that Western Australia was getting two-thirds of its energy consumption from both wind and solar combined, and fossil fuels were contributing only one-third. Now, that's a fairly substantial penetration. Uh, and guess what? On that day, the grid kept working, the market worked, the market didn't go negative, uh, and we saw, uh, in fact, actually, we saw nothing. <laughs> what we saw was a perfectly functioning grid, and that was with two-thirds of renewables penetrating the grid. So some of these things that are being talked about are abstract. Some of these things that are being talked about have not yet been tested, and very much I'm driven by data. The data that we've had to date shows that some of the problems that are being described are being overstated because the, the actual performance of the grid uh, doesn't reflect on what's being suggested might happen. So the duck curve, uh, Ray, is is when uh, from sort of nine o'clock in the morning until uh, four o'clock in the afternoon, there's a lot of uh, renewable energy coming into the grid and what's called for uh, by the sort of so-called baseload, uh, especially in Queensland where it's largely coal and, and inflexible, uh, goes down to effectively uh, zero. So um, that most of the power is being supplied by the by the renewables and the and the um, inflexible coal, which has to keep chunking along twenty four seven. I guess the the issue for the grid then is what happens at three o'clock in the morning on a still night. There's no photovoltaic, there's no wind, but you still need some sort of power supply from somewhere. And unless we've got massive battery storage or a pumped hydro or some other sort of storage, then we're still going to need something to um, sort of fill in the gaps between the intermittent power. Yeah, there's a string of measures that need to change as we move from having a dumb energy system to a smart energy system. And a smart energy system is going to be far more capable of making use of intermittent energy when it's available. Uh, so for things like downcycling of your refrigeration systems or either in home or in retail, uh, downcycling of consumption at times when, when usage is low, 
uh, sorry, when, when production is low and, and upscaling and making use of those things when it's scaling up. The duck curve is, is an important, uh, uh, been an important discussion point since 2011 when Caso, the, uh, the, the United, uh, the, sorry, the uh, Los Angeles Energy Group, uh, came up with the duck curve. And since that day, we've actually used it only theoretically. Uh, there's been very little data to actually show that the duck curve, as it was originally theorised, uh, has actually come to pass. The belly of the duck is real. There's no doubt that production of, of solar through the daytime creates the belly of the duck, and so therefore there's a decrease in demand uh, that is therefore not uh, taking electricity from other sources. But the other part of the duck was the neck. There was this idea that there'd this be accelerated consumption at night time as everybody started to use power. Uh, that was true while we had a feed-in tariff, which incentivised people not to use their own solar power but to export it and then use it at night. But nobody really gets a feed-in tariff anymore, and so what's happening is that those people that have solar are far better economically to use their own yeah. power they generate. Yeah, they run their washing machine. They run their washing machines in their pool pumps during the day instead of in the afternoon. Absolutely, and so this idea that we might have this neck of a duck, which would be this rapid escalation of uptake at night time, isn't happening. Uh, in the way that was was hypothesised at the time, uh, and so what we see now is that, yeah, yeah, the, you know, there's there's absolutely there's changes going to the energy market and there's changes going to electricity generation system, but they're manageable. Uh, and I always like to end at the at, at a point on those things to say, and that's why we have engineers. Uh, <laughs> engineers' job is to make those things work. Yeah, and I think if people are given the option, I mean, what people want, what consumers want, is lower power prices. So if you say to them, look, here's the system, if you use your uh, power, you know, if you've got photovoltaic on the roof and you run your pump during the day or you, you cool your house down during the day, uh, use your power sensibly, um, then we'll, we can guarantee you a you know, 20, 30% cut in your uh, power bill. Uh, but you also need to uh, be aware that if we want some of that power uh, during peak periods, then we, you know, as part of the deal, we could take 20% of your battery storage at that point, for instance, to stabilise the grid. Is that the way it should work? Yeah, look, I, th I think, again, utilities are, are imagining ways that they might survive uh, these changes. One of the very fundamental rules we know about innovation is that innovation invariably comes from without. It doesn't happen from within. Uh, and so the sorts of things that, that utilities are saying currently to say, we're going to innovate, we're going to be different, uh, no, they're not. They're going to be the same as every other enterprise. Um, I'll be surprised if any one utility actually manages to uh, innovate sufficiently, uh, although I've got confidence that, for example, Horizon Power uh, is well-placed to do, do that thing. But it's very, very challenging to innovate from within. Uh, and so the consequences very often is that the innovations and the disruptions are done by people outside the mainframe. And so that's what we'll see, I think, with particularly with energy storage, uh, and while the uh, Hornsdale battery in South Australia in some senses is very conventional, it's a big utility scale thing. Yeah. My view is that two thirds of battery use will actually be behind the meter in the same way that we now have um, uh, over a third of, of energy generation capacity in southwest Western Australia is on top of roofs. So by um, the, behind the meter, you mean in, on a microgrid, is that right? Uh, no, behind the meter means in somebody's home. I think that the uptake of... of Batteries will be just the same as the uptake of solar panels on rooftops. Yeah. So that means uh, that, that the uh, the owner of the batteries and the uh, solar photovoltaics will control their own power. 
Yeah, but what we'll do is, of course, we'll have uh, uh, marketplaces that are using technologies that may be peppered with blockchain or some other approach, but we'll have marketplaces that are created uh, that allow trading and people yeah. will be given uh, incentives to sell the stuff that's on their door and, and no different to Airbnb. Yeah, or, that's uh, what Gemma, Gemma uh, Green is doing currently. Precisely. So, Ray, um, just moving on, uh, my worry, I guess, at the moment is, you know, for the if you've got a, a sort of multi-billion dollar uh, sort of 600 megawatt coal-fired power station in Queensland, which is designed to run 24-7, produce power at five cents a kilowatt hour and sell it for seven cents or eight cents a kilowatt hour, if you've got three or four hours a day where you, you know, they're charging you $1,000 a megawatt to take your power away, you'll soon find that, um, you know, that power station was was meant to be selling power uh, 24-7 and now it can only sell it for maybe 18 or 20 hours a day. You'll soon find that that project is actually cash flow negative and the owners of those power stations will go, you know what, we're out of here because, you know, we can't make money. And, you know, you'll have to find your own power at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, look, like any good market, if if market signals are properly exposed, those that are least well-equipped to be competitive will be the first to go. Uh, some may persist if their owners think, oh, we'll weather this, we'll throw some money at it and we'll make a loss, but that's okay, we'll get through. Well, they won't uh, because that's reality. Uh, and when we know that things go loss-making, the market actually dictates what is the outcome? The second part that we know is as a part of all of that, uh, and this is language I didn't imagine I'd ever use as a botanist last century, but this century, you know, capital investment, uh, amortisation of capital uh, is something that we all need to consider. And the lifetime of projects is something that we need all to consider as well. Uh, when we planned large energy projects over the last couple of decades and the last century indeed, uh, we thought about really big projects and we'd put in a whole pile of cash and then we'd think we'd actually amortise that over at least 20 or 30 years to get our money back. What's happening with renewables and especially with the modulization of solar is that we can now build solar very cheaply uh, and we can build it to whatever scale that we want. We don't have to build a unit that's just 300 megs. We can build 10 or 20 or 30 at a time and we can add it as we, as we go. Um, so we've changed two metrics. We've changed, first of all, you don't necessarily need a big chunk of change up front to build a very large power station that will then dominate the market for the next 25 years. We can build a smaller power station and we can add them as we go. And then the second thing is, and we're actually doing it at a pretty low cost. So the other thing that changes here is that instead of looking at power purchase agreements that might have to run for 14 or 21 years, we can actually consider power purchase agreements that might be less than eight years because it actually allows us to deal with the lower cost of capital. Uh, now, we wouldn't have said the word lower cost of capital in association with renewables at the beginning of the decade, but at the end of the decade, uh, renewables are the lowest cost of capital for creating new energy. That's right. And also when you think about those big um, coal-fired or gas-fired power stations, it might be, you know, a billion dollars uh, to get the thing up and running, but over a 20-year product life, if you like, there'd probably be another $2 billion or $3 billion of ongoing uh, maintenance. And, you know, these things actually wear out. So your maintenance budget might be 15 or 20% of your total capital cost every year. So it's it's not just money spent and then you sit back with your arms folded and and, uh, and just run it. You, you still have to keep spending money on these things. Yeah, indeed. And, and again, the, the one of the fundamentals that's changing here is the financing model. 
and the way that we think about returns on capital. And so again, with this great big power station, if it was a great big gas-fired power station, 300 megs, before we even got to financial close on deciding to build this thing, we'd first of all actually have to get a gas contract. And the gas contract for a gas producer would have to be 14 years at least because they also want to amortise their costs of getting the gas out of the ground. So before you actually sign a contract to build a gas-fired power station, you have to sign a contract to take gas. Uh, and so you've actually got this dual process and, and the gas contract, of course, comes first and then you can actually build, uh, start to look for financial close of your gas-fired power station. That takes a long time. In, in a solar farm, I've just got to know that the sun comes up and, yeah, it's a bit bit more, um, you know, evidence than that. You've got to do a bit of monitoring and, and work out and make sure that you've got, you know, low cloud and, and all these other matters. But they're things that don't take a long time. And then you've got to, you build the solar farm, which is also something that doesn't take, I can build a 300 meg solar farm uh, in a year with the right crew. Uh, the fastest I can build a gas-fired power station is three years. So this build-up of cost and, and I guess, inertia that's associated with building the old-style fossil fuel plants is being done away with with the renewable energy plants. So just finally, Ray, uh, just can we just talk about the current advances with uh, Horizon Power and Western Power? For instance, I'm aware that uh, on the edge of the grid, there's been poles and wires going out 20 kilometres to areas where there might be five or ten uh, customers, and it costs uh, you know $4 million a year to keep those poles and wire in, in good shape, and you've got customers who are you know, using $10,000 worth of power every year. And so now Western Power's figured, no, we're just going to put out microgrids out there. We're going to put a uh, solar panels and we'll put some battery storage and we'll have a little diesel uh, generator backup for when that might be needed. And that's going to be a lot cheaper and better than running poles and wire. Is there, are there any other developments like that that we should know about? Well, look, I think that fringe of grid change is, is just going to lead the charge uh, first of all, we'll deal with the really long dangly bits, uh, like the ones out at Esperance where, um, you know, as Horizon Power has taken away 67 kilometres of power line and, and, and now 18 customers are going to work on standalone power systems. That will also start to happen across Western Power's grid as well. But then after we start to do those carb ups, because they're the highest cost points, we'll then start to look within the grid and say, well, Margaret River's a bit of a strange case. Maybe we can carve out Margaret River. Maybe we can carve out Denmark. Uh, maybe there's some logic that due to cut up is, you know, one of those um, towns might also start to have the same treatment. Um, as we actually improve the technology of solar and batteries with backup of some form, uh, then uh, the cost of providing those comes down. Suddenly they pass a price threshold and it's commercially logical uh, to actually go either to standalone or to a microgrid system where there's a number of customers connected uh, still to a power line, but that power line is not connected anywhere else necessarily. So those sorts of evolutions are, are, are going to happen now much more quickly. Um, I, my projections for the uptake of batteries have always said that 2019 and 2020 would be the time that it started, and that's been the case since I was putting those projections out uh, earlier in the decade. Uh, and what I'm discovering is that the data are now starting to come in and say, actually, my projections were pretty close to the truth. That's actually what's happening. And so the next thing that will happen is as cost price points come down, uh, we're going to see a far more rapid uptake of combination of solar and battery systems and the addition of battery to existing solar uh, much, much faster than we saw the take up of solar itself.
Ray, I think we've uh, we've done very well over our allotted time slot. I would love to have you back in to talk about some of the technologies and some of the hits and misses that we've seen in the renewable area. Obviously, there's been ceramic fuel cells and Carnegie and Orbital Engine, Infogen, a lot of companies that have come along and over the last decade or so haven't really performed financially all that well. But I think I sense that things are changing. We've got Redflow now with a very usable product. They just need to get their costs down. But I think that's for another time. And I think uh, Wildcatter listeners will be very pleased to have got this background. And I think we can build on that. And I'd love to have you back early next year. And we can talk a little bit more nitty gritty about some of the actual uh, technologies and some of the companies who are involved in in, uh, innovating in that space. So thanks for your time today, Ray. Thanks, Peter.